What's up, guys? It's Matt. On today's edition of the TKW Podcast, we are thrilled to be joined by Brian Koppelman, co-creator and showrunner of Billions. We go into some of his life as a Knicks fan, some of his experiences growing up in the Garden, how him and his son have bonded through being Knicks fans, and then we get into his experience in the entertainment industry, some celebrities that he's dealt with, and we also talk about the current political state and how that affects the projects that he works on moving forward. So awesome interview. We're really happy Brian came on. Without further ado, let's go. Folks, and welcome to the TKW Podcast. I'm Matt Spendley, and Kyle Bailey and I are thrilled to be joined by Billions co-creator and showrunner Brian Koppelman, and most importantly, Knicks fan. Brian, how's it going? It's going great, man, uh, other than whenever you mention the Knicks. Yeah, well, that's how it goes. You know what's <laughs> funny? I was on a, I was looking you up today just to make sure I was you know, well-versed, and uh, I found a piece of yours from Grantland in December 2013 that was just titled, The Knicks Suck. Yeah, and I got a huge kick out of it. <laughs> that was a terrible night, man. I mean, it was. I wasn't exaggerating. Like, my son and I left that game, and we just went trudging uptown. Like, I live all the way on the Upper West Side, so you know, we walked sixty blocks or something like that. Not quite sixty, but we walked so many blocks, just miserable with each other. I guess he was a high school senior, and, and at the time, <laughs> that makes sense. And. uh we just had, it'd been years. I started taking him to the games when he was three. And so, you know, he had a, we had a couple good years there, but basically, you know, he, he was born in 95, the end of 95. So we had a couple of decent years, but then mostly just suckage, raw fucking <laughs> suckage. And, uh, and then no hope that it would change. Anytime something good started to happen, you know, lots of unlucky breaks. Like, you know, you draft Channing Fry, and then Channing Fry comes out super promising and, uh, he's playing loose, and, and then suddenly Coach Brown comes and ruins him because he wants him to play a different, a different way. And over and over, there would be this promising sign, and then something would cut it off at, at, at the knees. And, uh, you know, right up until, obviously, we were huge Jeremy Lin people, and watching Carmelo destroy that team, watching uh, him undo everything that Tony was trying to do. And, yes, I know they won 54 games with Brown the next year. It doesn't matter they had a chance to be something really special and, and it got ruined again. And you just have a guy running the team who's, and there's just no other way to say it. I mean, he's just a moron. And um, it, it makes, not Steve Mills. I think Steve Mills is a great guy and a smart guy, but the guy mm-hmm. who pays Steve Mills check is the worst. And, and nothing's going to change until he's either forced to step down or sell. The Dolan thing is a huge issue for every single Knicks fan. And it has been forever. And it, it almost feels like, the general feeling around all NBA circles is until he's gone, the Knicks can't be a good franchise. And that's just how it is. It's not going to change. Got to the, like, I used to be, I used to be a, the kind of fanatical Nick fan who knew where each player wanted the ball and, and uh, their preferred position on the court. And I understood the offense they were running. And when they drafted somebody, I knew everything about them. And I will tell you guys, and this has to do with the fact that I'm, much older than you all. <laughs> Not that much. I can't deal with it. I can't deal with it anymore. 
I can't, uh, I don't, I like, you know, I watched the draft. I couldn't help myself, mm-hmm. but I didn't read up really ahead of time. I watched the kids work out. What's his name? The kid from Kentucky? Kevin Knox. Kevin Knox. I watched the workout yesterday, and I was heartened to see that he could hit some deep threes. Uh, you know, very impressive, I guess. To have, you know, to have someone who can hit some threes under pressure would be good. But I can't really. And like, yes, I. I'm more than I know that Gwen is going to be gone. I like I understand all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But I'm not living and dying with every move they make or with every roster decision. Um, I'll I always know if they won or lost, but I I've stopped allowing my mood to be dictated by the Knicks. And my son and I, the two of us, our mood was dictated by the Knicks for a long, long fucking time. My dad too. My first memory, the first memory I have as a human being, is being with my dad at the Garden when the Knicks were playing the Baltimore Bullets and. Earl the Pearl was on the bullets and Dance and Harry was there. And then when Pearl came to the Knicks the next year, that was the most exciting thing that had ever happened to me as a five-year-old, you know, or six-year-old. And uh, that's what the Knicks meant to me forever and ever. And, uh, you know, but it's just been nothing but, I don't know how you guys do it, like how you keep (laughs) your enthusiasm or how you keep your hope up. Well, how you keep your hope up? I I was going to say, I think the beautiful thing, like coming from a guy, I, I share those same sentiments, like, for me, once I started trying to cover this a little bit more objectively and like try to put on my like analyst hat, for me, that's when I stopped like shattering remotes when they lost to the Celtics in a four game sweep after Amari hurt his back. <laughs> like, you know, so for me, it's kind of helped to be like, well, I can't get angry. I have work to do. Like, so for me, it's, it's sort of alleviated that that uh, emotional side of it. Maybe there will come a day when that changes. But um Sure. I think that, I don't know about Matt and Bailey, but I mean, that's how I feel anyway. I'm not like, like you're saying, not living or dying by things now. It's just like, look, we just got to, we got to do our jobs every day. We got to report some stuff. We got to put some content out and it makes things a little bit more digestible, I guess. Yeah. And I've said this in the past too. I think it's, we've all, especially like in our Slack group, like in our group chat, like our Nick's wall group, like we have such a cynical gallows humor type sense of humor. <laughs> where like, even if something good happens, we don't cheer. We don't rejoice. Like, we, we just are like, wow, it's going to be really great you to write can't. about when this when you this goes to shit. <laughs> something happens. It's going to go the other way. I mean, <laughs> no, exactly. No, possibly think that uh, a good quarter means a fucking thing at this point. <laughs> I mean, it just, do- you know, it just doesn't. And um, we couldn't possibly expect them to draft the best player in the franchise in, you know, 20 years and him not tear his ACL. It's like those little things. Exactly. <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, no, it's um, it's a nonstop. Uh, it's like a, just a, a nonstop insult that just keeps hitting you in in the it's an insult machine that won't stop. And look, when I was writing about it a lot for Grantland, there was something cathartic about being able to do that. But it didn't feel good to see what was going to happen ahead of time to predict the Carmelo thing. You know, that was the Carmelo Anthony Joy record thing I wrote was the one that people really a lot of people read and, and cared about and it brought me no joy no it brought me no joy to, to write about it i will say I, I got to write um for sports illustrated bailey's new home i got to write um about uh i got to write anthony mason's eulogy for sports illustrated and i loved writing that uh i felt terrible that mace was gone but you know the lunch pail 
the, the, the aesthetic that those guys brought to the table, you know, Mace and Starks. And that team, their determination to play as hard as a human could play and as smart as they were capable of and willing to sacrifice their bodies and their souls for this thing really moved me as a younger person. And I just wish there was a way. I see teams playing like that, you know? And I just wish that, but it does seem like when people come to New York, they don't care. Like, yes, Porzingis is ACL, but also Porzingis' brother who messed with his head before that. And so, yes, Porzingis got hurt. But even before that, Porzingis decided, eh, who gives a shit? On some level, he was playing great, but you felt that this was a guy, he got rid of his general manager, he was dissatisfied with the way the thing was running, and his brother was telling him he was the best player in the world, and why should he have to take orders from anybody? And I think there's something in the culture of the Knicks. If, if you had given Porzingis to pop, and forgetting what happened, obviously, with Kawhi, that, but that's a real exception, you know? If you would have given Porzingis to pop, I think Porzingis is even in a way further along kind of place. So you mentioned uh, about that story you wrote for Grant Landon about how you were with your son at Madison Square Garden. And something, just as a follower of both on Twitter of both yours and your son, it seems like that's something, I mean, I know you, I've seen you tag him in Knicks tweets before and tag him in this and that. So what kind of, what is the Knicks, like, it seems to have like a large impact kind of in your... I, did you guys lose Bailey too? I lost the end of that question. Yeah, yeah, yeah we lost Bailey. So just generally, like how you and your son have bonded <laughs> over being Knicks fans. Well, you know, like I said, my first memory was my dad taking me and, and I started taking my son when, when he was really young. Um, when I graduated college, the first year I graduated college, I got lucky in a business thing I did and I made enough money to buy one season ticket. And I bought it with a friend of mine who was 10 years older than I was. And the two of us had, you know, a couple hundred rows back, two tickets, one each. And then about 10 years into it, he had to move um, to California. And I then, this is when Sam was like two. And so I got both tickets. And so, and by that time I moved up and moved up and moved up. And I ended up being like in the sixth row center court before they raised the prices. And so we started going to games, sixth row center court. Cause I'd already put in the 12 years to move the tickets up. And so the two of us, my son and I just would go to every, pretty much every home game. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's something that you're really talking about and thinking about. And he painted his room orange and blue, and um, he has still on the room. I mean, he graduated Harvard this year, and he came home to our house for a month before he moves in his apartment. And he's, like, still in the room that has uh, on the wall is the number of, that he painted the number of every Nick who's got his number retired, everyone who's in the rafters, plus Red, the 613 for Red Holzman, 619, for Red Holzman, yep. 13. 613 for Red Holzman. And then uh, Bernard's number 30. So uh, he has two 15s, you know, because there are two 15s retired, uh, and, and Bernard. And so it's just um, this, it's like a central part of the language. We still, in the first, I mean, the first game of the year, wherever we are in the world, we're both watching and talking to each other on the phone. Then, you know we stop at some point because it gets too sad. <laughs> you and uh, your son are basically the same age as me and my dad. So I think it's a similar kind of relationship that we have. You know, it's uh, it's where you were the one that's telling, you know, my dad's got some older brothers too that's saying, oh, you, you know, you wouldn't imagine. Like my older uncle was a, a ball boy for the Knicks. 
So he was a wow. ball boy, you know, 70, 73. So he's got all these stories. He told me a story that he once brought a bowl of soup to Dustin's Hoffman house. I, I still don't think it's true, but he can keep believing it if he wants to. <laughs> uh, I guess it's just, it's a really funny juxtaposition because we never knew anything but being young and growing up and being, you know, we were four when the Knicks made the finals against the Spurs. And then we were eight when they had actually been a playoff team that we had anything to root for. And so that, that year in 2012, 13, when they were actually really good was such a change from the norm. It was incredible. It was wild. So, it was wild. Yeah. It was, it's, it's been such an interesting journey. The old, like my, like Sammy, you guys must've watched all the old. Oh, like, absolutely. Yeah. My yeah. dad forced him down my throat. What else? Yeah. So <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. You guys knew Bernard and you knew, absolutely. you know, like, so this is the thing that Bernard game, when Bernard against the Pistons was April 27th, 1984, when he, the Pistons in the fifth game, Bernard had the two broken fingers. Isaiah scored the 16 points at the end of the game to tie it, yep. and then the Knicks won. And the Knicks then went on to play against the Celts. So that was my 18th birthday. So my 18th birthday, mm-hmm. my friends and I watched this, like the you know one of the last truly amazing moments when we had arguably, you know we had the second best player in the league or the third best player in the league on our team. He was playing at his best. He defeated the huge rival. Then we went and lost to the Celtics in seven, I think, maybe six or seven. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that was, you know, I felt like it was going to keep going. And then the next, you know, the pro- I go to college that next year. And I mean, I, I can totally remember when when he hurt his knee. And, you know, that was the moment everything started going really badly south for us. Can you imagine? All right, let me ask you this. Best moment at the Garden you ever experienced over your however many odd years going to the Knicks games? I was, yeah. I I mean, there are so many moments that I could talk about. I was there for the, I'll say, you're not going to like one answer. So I was there for the Starks dunk. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I was there for a Larry Johnson shot. But the greatest thing I ever saw in the garden, I think, other than when I was a little boy with my dad, which I'm not going to, like as a sentient person, I was at the game where Jordan scored the 55. No, that hurts. And, you know, <laughs> that's the best. I mean, it was. It's fair. It's a it, good objective answer. Yeah. It was a crazy thing. To, I mean, it was just a crazy thing to see, you know, um, to see that guy come back second day, right? And in Madison Square Garden, all the Knicks wanted to do was shut him down. And, uh, you know. What he did, the way the guard felt that night, you felt like you were seeing the greatest athlete who ever lived, doing, rising up to the top of his level. And it was just, it lifted the whole building up, you know. Uh, and then in a dark sense, I was, I really loved it when Spree came back and made the choking thing too. Oh my God, yes. Me? I was there and that's another all time great moment. <laughs> I mean, the whole garden is just cheering like crazy for Spree. And Dolan has to just, you know, sit through it. Yeah, exactly. The last thing that he would want to do. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> sometimes sometimes your problems are your own fault. You reap what you sow. So, That's I mean. Yes. What would it take at this point, because you've expressed, like, your displeasure in certain things, like, what would it take for you to be, like, all back on board like you used to be? Or do you think that's kind of too far gone? You couldn't get but there. Too much it, going on. I want to say the only thing would be Dolan leaving the team. But – you know, suddenly we were really winning. I think I would just emotionally, I mean, guys, like I'm, I have to, you know, if you went to my apartment as now me as a 52 year old man and you opened a bunch of drawers, you'd see like a hundred vintage Nick hats that I've just kept for all that time. Like, so 
I, I still, still in my blood. Um, but I hope it would be the Dolan If they started winning a bunch of games and they, they were playing a brand of basketball that seemed like they could win. I mean, Jeremy Lin leaving really. I know that all the I know all the metrics people don't care. But to me, there was a chance that that Lin could have been brought along in a way that he could have continued to play that well. I know that people figured out how to defend him and make him go left. I understand the sort of stat geek argument. On the other hand, I watched the kid do this remarkable stuff. So I, I did feel kind of crushed when they let him go. It's one of the more great, like as a Knicks fan growing up, as I mentioned our age, the Linsanity thing has so much emotion behind it that the Knicks just didn't have for so many years. And that's what made it so great. Yeah, it was, it was it was innocent joy, exactly. which is something that has just eluded this franchise. Yeah, we were all like, uh, like we were all letting this kid carry us away. And you know, I'm I'm an eighth hardcore atheist. I mean, there's nothing about Jeremy Lin <laughs> as a dude that makes me yeah. want to hang with him. Other than like he's smart and he obviously read a lot of books when he was at school, we'd find something to talk about. But like his core <laughs> belief system and my core belief system are quite different. But those, listen, that's the magic of sport and the magic of uh, being a lifelong fan of a team like that. Suddenly, for 48 minutes, Jeremy Lin was everything in the world to me. And and Dolan has no, he's like a tone-deaf fan conductor or something. He has no sense <laughs> of why we love music. He can't hear it. And so he can't make the right decisions because he doesn't feel anything. We feel stuff. He doesn't feel anything. Do you know Oak at all? Like Charles Oakley, have you ever had conversations with him? No, but I mean, so Simmons texted me and he was like, if there's one podcast in your life you ever have to listen to, listen to he, Oak. He talked that one up too, right before he was like, this is the best podcast I've ever recorded in my entire you, life. He, he personally really did, texted yeah. his friends too. Yeah. Say like, you have to watch. <laughs> and, um, and you have to listen. And I did it. It was awesome. I, I shook Oak's hand, but I don't know him. Okay. I never spent time with him. Got it. Um, I've spent a lot of time with Earl Monroe in my life, which is incredible. But not, I don't, and, and, and you know, I'm, and I know you probably heard the Simmons a couple of years ago. Like, I've spent, I've had a bunch of dinners and spent a bunch of time with Phil Jackson. But, so we've talked a lot about the Knicks. Did you, ever um, try, did you ever try to get any Knicks guys on Billions or anything? Was that something you ever thought about just to shoehorn it in? Yeah, but not, not these Knicks. Yeah, well, obviously. You know, I, you're telling me people don't want to see, you know, Courtney Lee? <laughs> I'm shocked. Courtney Lee, you know, Lance Thomas, superstars. <laughs> um, so, I, yeah, I just wanted to congratulate you on the show again. The third season was awesome. Oh, uh, thank you, man. So thank it's you. And Rounders is obviously one of my favorite movies. Do you have any, like, aspirations to do anything, like, sports-centric or anything like that moving forward? We almost did, um, at the beginning of our career, we almost did like a story about the Globetrotters and there have been various like point-shaving movies we've um, flirted with doing. We just haven't found, you know, it's weird. Like, it's hard to conceive of how you do a basketball movie better than Hoosiers. It's hard to conceive of how you do a football movie better than Rudy or um, Return of the Titans. You know, is that the name of that movie, Return of the Titans? Uh, remember the Titans. Remember the Titans, yeah. 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 Remember the Titans, who was saying it wrong. Yeah. Like, there are these movies that are just sort of like lay out the dance steps of what that would be. And so you don't want to do something that would feel familiar. If we found a way to do it that was new and different, we would, you know, the way we work is we find a, a subject that's really like compelling to us and we try to research it and chase it down and then figure out a way to tell the story in, in a way that it hasn't. 
and that hasn't presented itself. We're huge sports fans. Mm-hmm. I would love to, we'd love to make a golf movie if we could figure out how to do it. There's only really been one great one in a very, very long time, you know? And um, so I would do it if the right, if we thought of the right thing. But uh, on the other hand, Billions takes up our whole lives professionally. Yeah, I can imagine. Who's your favorite cameo that you guys have had? Because I know you've had KD, Mark Cuban, you know, the Tish guys. Well, yeah, we've had a bunch of them. Yeah. I mean, I can't say my favorites ever. I will say that this year... Like, it was amazing. KD, I knew he was going to come on the show. We talked about it. We got together. I was thrilled he came and he knocked it out of the park. Yeah, it was awesome. I would say, though, that it was surreal to have Maria Sharapova on the show. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because so Damien's so good at tennis. And so you didn't have to double Damien. And so being able to actually have your actor smashing the ball back to one of the 10 greatest female tennis players ever. It was, it was amazing. And the other thing about her that was incredible. So she's hitting with Damien, and you know she's probably playing it fifty percent, which is a lot of heavy topspin and not easy. And Damien's hitting it back. But no, we had said to Maria, "Listen, when I shout to you, put it away. Can you put it away? Does he need to hit it somewhere?" And she was just like, "Don't worry about it. Wherever he hits it." And it was true. So she would hit, he would hit, she would hit, and then Damien would hit a shot, and, and I'd say, uh, "Put it away." And like. Whatever Damien did, hard ball, high ball, low ball, far ball, Maria could just like could get to the ball in a way that seemed effortless and just smash it into the exact corner we needed her to and put it away. Like top pro athletes are just – it's shocking. They're freaks. It's shocking. They're not of this species. Yeah. What, what they're able to do. It's like you – don't, You don't realize until you see it. You don't. The exact yeah. level – like you know they're much – like you know oh, if I were hitting with Maria Sharapova, I – couldn't keep it in play. But you, what you don't understand is like, she's not even playing tennis with you. She's, it's nothing to her. It doesn't even exist. She, see, she's see, on so many levels beyond. You see, know? I, I have a funny story about that. It's not even a Maria Sharapova story, but at the rec league I play in um, down the street, we had a, a team from Waterbury. And Ryan Gomes is from Waterbury in Connecticut. So after he had gotten released by the Thunder a couple of years back, his friends were playing in our league and they're like, oh, come play with us, you know, just get some run. So he comes and, you know, everybody's like heckling him the first half. You could see he's not really trying, but he's like 0 for 10. He's just kind of shooting whatever, right? He doesn't really care, right? So then somebody that I'm good friends with was really laying into him about like, you know, you fucking suck, just like laying into him, right? So then he goes and he scores like, th- these are eight minute quarters. And this is like on a high school court. And he's just like gargantuan in comparison to everyone. And he goes on to score like 35 out of the next like 40 points. They end oh. up, it, yeah, they were down by like 10 at halftime. It was a blowout win. It was just disgusting. And like he, you could tell it wasn't even like 100%. Like he was just like slightly engaged. You know yes. what I mean? Like, yeah, of course. And, and when you see it, like, again, it's one thing to watch it when they're playing each other, professional competition. But when you see it against like amateur competition, you're like, ah, well, that's, this is why it's difficult to stay in the NBA. No, but I, always wanna, I always want to play horse. Like I'm a pretty good shooter, and I always want to play horse against these guys. So, like I've gotten to know JJ and become friendly with him. And I was trying to figure out how I would set up a gambling horse match. This is what I come up, came up with. Tell me what you guys think. So let's say JJ's, what, the fourth best shooter in the league or the third best shooter in the league or something He's like that. Yep. So I want, to put four, I want him to start with S, and then also he has to shoot 10 feet behind wherever I shoot. And then I think there's a chance. But in all likelihood, there's still no chance. Ten feet behind. Wow. So, yeah. Well, think of that feels fair. Like, yeah. he could still win. He should still win. So I was with him and Mike Dunleavy, Jr. 
And Dunleavy Jr. said, if J.J. shot first, even under those rules, you can't win. You couldn't be. Like, if he shot first, because J.J.'s like, dude, the four letters on me are not pressure. I'm not going to feel pressure. <laughs> like, you're going to feel all the pressure. But I was thinking if I shot a three, he would have to shoot 10 feet behind three. Well, that, that's an excellent point because I know we like to make fun of guys like, you know, uh, even Dwight Howard or somebody who can't make free throws. But then you watch these practice videos and Dwight Howard's shooting like 90% from the free throw line in practice. Like, it's just it's just different. So, like, him shooting 10 feet behind you, like, that's a good start. You know, like, it, it's still probably going to be pretty easy for him, but, like, it's a, it's a good start. You have to, like, almost place these impossible odds for them because in shoot-around situations, like, they're going to be lights out one way or another. Yes, I agree. I agree. I gotta. I gotta get the game. To, I'm, I think I'm gonna make it happen, though. I'm gonna work on getting that to happen this time. You gotta. You gotta. Make you it a whole video. Can make him, I can try to the, like make him take shots, perhaps I, before I, a shot, like <laughs> an alcoholic beverage. Sure. Just sort of slant the odds in your favor a little bit. I've just been going to the gym and trying to shoot. I've just been going to shoot and trying to figure out what. Like he won't. You know. He won't. I'm gonna try to really strategize it out and like practice all these shots so that I can set it up. I'm still going to get destroyed. (laughs) So something I've noticed, uh, Brian, is like you're very active on Twitter and social media. I mean, that's how you and I have got to know one another and everything. And you do like your uh, open forum, basically, where you have people ask you questions every week. So so where did this come from? And like what value do you think that brings to like you personally and billions and everything? Because like Uh, I don't see a lot of people kind of champion like you do on there. Well, uh, I do that during the season that ask me anything thing Sunday nights before the show. Well, I'm in this incredibly fortunate position. So I have a few different answers. One, look, man, Trump changes everything. So that made me much, much more active and probably ineffective. Like no one can figure out the right messaging or the right way to do it. I I sort of hate what he's doing to the country so much that I feel like to not to miss an opportunity to restate it or find a new way to state it is not being a good American. So I have to do it. but engaging with people, you know, uh, when I, I started doing a Vine series a long time ago when I host the podcast, The Moment, and I get a lot out of trying to help people give themselves permission to do creative work. And so if I can, by my example or my words, help somebody who's not getting the most out of themselves creatively start to, it just feels good. It's really simple. It's selfish. It's like I, I get letters from people who got to start doing a thing because partially because of a conversation we had, uh, you know, it feels great. Also, when I was a kid, man, I would have loved it. The guy, you know, one of the guys who was the showrunner of my favorite show took 10 minutes to like answer my question online. That would have really meant something to me. And I don't hold myself out as special or different. Like I have a certain set of talents. I worked super hard. I've gotten lucky. It's no skin off of my nose to fucking spend a half hour chatting with people. So I, it's like, I, for me, it's a simple thing. Like, I don't really see a need to put myself um, above or be private or separate. I'm not going to tell you where I live, but I am going right. to, you know, and I'm not going to read your script or anything like that. But um, I'm happy to try to be some kind of big brother on there for people if they need it. So I wasn't going to bring it up, but since you did bring it up, you are strong oppositionally to Trump very clearly out there on there. It's not something I'm going to argue with, certainly at all. You follow me. You see that. <laughs> um, so do you think that's boosted your following? Do you ever get people – I know you're notorious for being on there, for being like, thanks for watching when someone's like, why are you tweeting about politics? Like on there? So like <laughs> – no, like, 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 uh, 
how dare you hate Trump? Your show sucks. I watched two seasons. I hate it. It's like, thanks for watching. You know, I, um, but uh, no, look, dude, there's no, you have, I have to separate it out. I'm, I'm definitely not like helping my brand by being against Trump. But I am first like a father and a husband and an American citizen and a citizen of the world. And like, I can't not speak out when things are terrible. Like, okay, when Trump says we should just send people back at the border in, without due process. Well, if people don't understand how crazy that is, that means, Bailey, that if you happen to be in Texas, a guard could look at you, decide not to even look at your papers and just kick you out of the country. That's insane. And so I have no choice but to, you know, I'm educated as a lawyer too. I have no choice but to speak out. I don't think it's helped me in terms of my Twitter following. I'll say, I don't, I probably never thought I'd have this big of a social media following and like the reach I have because of the kind of people who follow me, whatever. If I have more followers or slightly fewer, it can't, that can't impact me. You know what I mean? I'm, I get Definitely. to make this TV show and I'm, after the other thing is, I'm because I'm older than you guys. You know, I've been at this 22 years. I've gotten to make a whole bunch of movies. I sort of am who I am, for good or for bad in the culture. I'm who I'm. My whatever I am is sort of set. It's the thing that I am, right? People listen to my podcast. That's me for an hour every week. They feel like I'm their best friend and. That's just what that, that doesn't sort of change. That's just the way that that it is. Yeah, man. I think it probably is a net negative for like adding followers. I think people would rather I talked about the Knicks, um, rock and roll movies and books. I think that's what people who follow me and like advice. I think that's what people want. On the other hand, I feel a duty, so I'm torn. If Trump had lost the election, I wouldn't be tuning into politics at all. And when he's out of office, I will. Go back to not tweeting about that. Well, I personally am glad that you do. So. We all are. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad. Yeah. Yeah, we're all glad you do there. Uh, I have one last question, and then we'll get you out of here. When you're yes. like, you know, so I know you said Billings is going to have a few seasons, you know, maybe seven seasons. When you're going through and with the current political environment and a show that's so politically driven, yeah. do you account for that when you're writing the show? Do you write characters that were meant to dislike that are milked in that mold? How do you approach that? You know, you have to know the world shifted, so you can't ignore it completely. We don't make the show about Trump, but, you know, this year, Jock Jeffcoat is clearly a character who came from an administration like Trump's administration. Uh, yeah, you, you have to put that stuff on its feet. And it's great that we have a show and a, a network that allows us, you know, the show is built for that in a way. And so you don't want to look at you want to be measured. I mean, there aren't very many heroes on our show. So you're presenting the way you see the, all different aspects of the world. It informs it, but it doesn't dictate it, is I guess what I would say. All right, so, Brian, we really thank you for joining, man. Eagerly await the Kevin Knox cameo the next season of Billions. Guys, I'll come back when the Knicks, if the Knicks are, if after the second week of the season, the Knicks are in first place for a week or longer, I'll come back and we'll celebrate. Oh, boy. All right. That we have that good. to Maybe we'll to. meet up. Maybe we'll even meet up. How's that sound? Maybe we'll I even try to catch a game together. Yeah? All right, all right guys. Good. All right, Brian. All right. Thanks, man. Thank you so much.